Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And today we're diving into Revelation chapter 10. But before we do, we just want to remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Also, you can subscribe for our weekly newsletters at proclamationmagazine.com. And we would really appreciate it if you would go wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review because that helps expand the reach of Former Adventist Podcast. You know, you have Adventists who are on there looking for their own podcasts and they get that name Adventist on there. And if we have enough reviews, we pop up and they just might bump into the truth of the gospel this way. So that's a way that you can really help to promote this ministry. You can also follow us on YouTube, hit like, hit subscribe, and make sure that you get notifications for our live premiere on Tuesdays, where you can listen to this episode and interact with other people who are listening at the same time. Let's just jump in, Colleen. I have a question that has just been burning since I listened (laughs) to Gary's teaching at Word Search. It was at number 25 in his series on Revelation, and he actually addressed the fact that this chapter has in it an Adventist proof text. I had no idea. And I'm wondering if you could explain (laughs) how the Adventists use Revelation chapter 10 for their particular history and and worldview. Well, you know, when I listened to Gary on his number 25 as well, I had totally forgotten he did that. I'd totally forgotten he mentioned Revelation 10 as being an Adventist proof text, and I truly forgot that he had asked Richard and me if we could explain that, and Richard took it away and did an excellent job. Growing up, I was just confused about Revelation. And looking back, I did hear about Revelation in the Little Scroll in relationship to the Great Disappointment and in relationship to Millerism and so forth, but I didn't remember it. And it never really stuck. And even though I heard it growing up, it didn't become part of my worldview where I have all my little ducks in a row and Revelation 10 and the little scroll was part of it. Richard, however, did remember it because he was taught by his mother, (laughs) who was a very devout Adventist. And there's really almost no detail of Adventism Richard was not taught. And it really did shape his understanding of this religion. I also became curious after listening to Gary, and I went and looked up some other sources. If this might be a good time to just share some of them, because it turns out that this little scroll that we're going to talk about here in chapter 10 has been used by Adventists over the years as a proof text or as an evidence of God's work in the Millerite movement and in the founding of Adventism. It's vague. They use it different ways. Different people within Adventism refer to it in different ways. But I have some quotes from different sources that I think help illustrate it. The first quote I have here is from the commentary on a Sabbath school lesson from February 12, 2019. Now, that's really that's recent. recent, yeah. Yeah. This is from the website Sabbath School Net. And Sabbath School Net is not the official Seventh-day Adventist site where the Sabbath school lessons are published. It is a true blue Adventist site that a lot of people use for their commentary and for their study to teach the Sabbath school lesson. So, this is a quote on this particular subject from the February 12, 2019 Sabbath School Commentary, John's bittersweet experience in eating the scroll representing the book of Daniel. Oh, wow. And right there we have the first definition 
that many Adventists use. They say the scroll that we're going to study today was really the book of Daniel. And this is related to the unsealing of Daniel's end-time prophecies. John here represents God's end-time remnant church that is commissioned to proclaim the everlasting gospel of Revelation 14, 6-7 at the close of Daniel's time prophecy mentioned in Daniel 7.25 or the 1260 days slash years. Right there, Nikki, I am already confused. Yeah, that's loaded with Adventist uh-huh. doctrine. And you see, when I heard these things floated around in my Adventist teaching, because I did get really true blue Adventist teaching as a child in school, these things didn't stick because my mother didn't talk about them and neither did my dad. I believe the big stuff, but these things, it was just confusion to me. Mm-hmm. But this quote goes on. The context indicates that John's vision points to another bittersweet experience at the conclusion of the prophetic 2300-year period, when, on the basis of Daniel's prophecies, the Millerites thought that Christ would return in 1844, that message was sweet to them. However, when Christ did not appear as expected, they experienced a bitter disappointment, and searched the scriptures for a clearer understanding. John's commission to prophesy again to the world points to Sabbath-keeping Adventists. So there you have it. Adventists are right there in Revelation 10. Sabbath-keeping Adventists raised up to proclaim the message of the second coming in connection with the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. That was creative. No kidding, right? And it's interesting that he begins some of that with the context indicates. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that really is funny. <laughs> the context would have to be my Adventist worldview with a great controversy paradigm built around it. It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another little quote that is from a paper written by Nelson Mercado at Southern University. This is also fairly recent. This is dated 2018, and the paper is called The Little Scroll of Revelation 10, Prophecy or Excuse. Kind of an interesting title, actually. And this is a reference that Mercado makes in his paper. The experience of the Millerites was the same as John's experience. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry for laughing, but that's how they have to get there from here. They have to see themselves in Revelation. But an objective observer would see that what the Millerites experienced bears no resemblance to what John is experiencing right now on Patmos. Exactly. There's no similarity. And furthermore, the Millerites are extra biblical. And let's not forget that this very book we're studying ends with a warning not to add anything or to take away anything from this book. Okay, it goes on. They, the Millerites, believed that it was the earth that was to be cleansed, therefore Jesus would return. The news was sweet to them, but when Jesus did not return, the reality became bitter. There's that little scroll, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. Of this experience, Ellen G. White wrote, It was hard to take up the vexing cares of life that we thought we had laid down forever. It was a bitter disappointment that fell upon the little flock whose faith had been so strong and whose hope had been so high. And that particular quote of Ellen White came from her grandson, Arthur White's book, Ellen G. White, The Early Years. And I just find it interesting that it's a secondhand quote. 
I don't really know. I, I couldn't find where that was actually found where she originally wrote it, mm-hmm. but it is quoted in Arthur White's book. And then finally, George Knight, who is still alive, I believe, formerly was a historian on the faculty of Andrews University. He wrote a paper in 2017, copyrighted in 2017, and this paper was called The Controverted Book of Revelation 10, published in the Journal of Adventist Theological Society. And he says this, if the contents of the little book of Revelation 10 are controverted, someone forgot to tell the founders of Seventh-day Adventism. William Miller, for example, in 1841, interpreted the little book that would be sweet in the mouth as being opened in 1798 as evidenced by the increased study of Daniel's prophecies stimulated by the events related to the French Revolution and the taking of the Pope captive by General Berthier. And Ellen White couldn't have been more certain. The book that was sealed, she wrote in 1896, was not the book of Revelation, but that portion of the prophecy of Daniel, which related to the last days. After quoting Daniel 12.4 and the sealing of this book until the time of the end, she noted that, quote, when the book was opened, the proclamation was made. Time shall be no longer. See Revelation 10.6. The book of Daniel is now unsealed, and the revelation made by Christ to John is to come to all the inhabitants of the earth. By the increase of knowledge, a people is to be prepared to stand in the latter days. And the Ellen White quote. And then Knight continues by saying that James White, her husband and one of the founders of Adventism, wholeheartedly agreed with his wife. And he goes on and establishes that this belief about the little scroll of Daniel 10 explains the founding of the Adventist movement, the belief that Jesus would come back, and when he didn't, it was a bitter disappointment, and that's what was sweet and then bitter. And then they were commissioned to <laughs> to teach their version of Daniel yes. to the world. This is just so convoluted. I am not surprised in looking back that the connection of the little scroll to Adventism didn't stick in my head, especially since my mother was never sure she could believe in the investigative judgment. So there was that in my background as well. Mm -hmm. But Richard, he did understand it. And it's still there, and their theologians and historians are still writing about it. They're still putting it in their Sabbath school commentaries, and bears no resemblance to what I'm reading in the book of Revelation. It's like they use the book of Revelation like a, a... recipe book. Yeah. Each chapter standing alone and having nothing to do with each other. In fact, <laughs> Nikki, I was just listening last night to the podcast that went live last night over Revelation 9 and remembering that Ministry Magazine had that chart with the seven different theological views of the fifth and sixth trumpets and nobody could agree. Adventism, when they get into the heart of Revelation, they don't really know what to do with it Mm -mm. because they're trying to attach it to a worldview established by Ellen White in the Great Controversy, where she wrote an amended form of church history that you'll never read in a true church historian's work. And everything they see here, they try to apply without taking seriously the implications of the words themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the verse that talks about here a little, there a little, you know, grab your information all over the place. And and really, 
it's the fruit of the faith of Ellen White and how she lived and how she used scripture. It is. It honestly reflects the weak-willed woman who's always learning and never arriving at truth. Second Timothy. Yes, that was Ellen White. And you can say what you'd like about her being a strong leader, um, a humble, sweet little woman, a grandmotherly sort of person, but yet I read her stuff and that lady was not weak in terms of the way she treated people. She was harsh. She grabbed her power to herself and she knew nothing of the Bible herself. She even admitted that she didn't really understand the Bible and she had to be shown in vision. I always worry a little bit, Colleen, when we talk about Adventism and Ellen White and we read these quotes, because I understand that our listeners are in various places as they listen to these podcasts related to their perspective on Adventism. And I know it's sometimes hard to hear us when we laugh or we get exercised, but It's a difficult thing. I don't know any other way to do this because I look at this stuff and I look at this overt false teaching and horrible use of scripture Mm -hmm. and, and embarrassing quotes that I once thought were inspired by the spirit of God. I cringe and it's, it's probably a combination of righteous indignation and anger from the flesh. Yeah. And I want to keep that in check, but this is a difficult thing. I mean, we were made up of this. We were. For a long period of time. I it yeah. was 30 when I escaped. I was mid-40s. I just have to say right here, I own it. I was an Adventist. I was not embarrassed to be an Adventist, even though it was embarrassing at many times through my life. But I loved Adventism. I loved being an Adventist. I believed it was God's will. And even though I can't remember the teaching of the little scrolls specifically, even though I wasn't taught it as well as Richard was taught it, I was taught this basic worldview. Mm-hmm. I was taught Adventism and I owned it. And you know what, Nikki? I have to remind myself, I, I frequently remember, how did I believe it? People will sometimes say who've never been Adventist, well, how could you believe that? Mm-hmm. And I want to say, I got it with my mother's milk. I was given the definitions from before I could talk, and I had a Bible. That's the thing. That's on me. I had a Bible, but I read it through the worldview I was taught was right, and it was many years before I realized I needed to pray to know what was really right and ask God to teach me what He was really saying. And if I may add to that, because I relate to what you're sharing, we read this through an Adventist lens, through an Adventist worldview, but also under a bite model, where even when we had moments where things weren't lining up, we had been taught how to think about our own ability to understand Scripture. Oh, yes. We had been taught to defer all of the answers out to those who know better than us. Absolutely. And so it was built into the experience to not pay attention to the dissonance that Scripture brought up in us. You know, that's a really good point, because that same bite model, that same don't pay attention to the dissonance scripture brings up, extended into don't pay attention to the dissonance inside your family when things don't add up. Don't pay attention to the dissonance in your employment when you see your colleagues misbehaving and the administration moving them around so they get away from the temptation, but they never remove the offender. You know, there were so many pieces to this puzzle. 
Yeah. And added to that, I would say also don't pay attention to the Christians who think they're telling you the truth, but they don't have all of it like we do. Oh, that was primary in my mind. I knew that Christians could be very sincere, but I also believed all they had was Jesus and I knew the Sabbath. Yeah, we had we had all the answers because we had the last day prophet. And so when we come to scripture and we see how completely disconnected the Adventist worldview is from scripture and we see how careless they are with the word of God and how careful they are with retaining members. Yes. It's hard to not react it because is. I once believed they were the smartest religious group on the planet, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. Me too. And that no one knew the Bible like they did. And so to sit here on the other end of it and to see this, I do have emotional reactions. I do too. That doesn't reflect a lack of love for the people who are in, who are stuck, who need the Lord, they're image bearers, and God wants them to know Him. You know, sometimes, Nikki, I have a hard time explaining the feeling I have because I have a very strong emotional reaction to it, but I can't say that it's pure anger. Mm-hmm. It's more a feeling of sometimes I want to cry from frustration or a feeling of being trapped mm-hmm. because I don't know how to speak into the worldview of people who are committed to holding up Adventism. I hear some of their most eloquent, well educated pastors knowing something's wrong, even teaching the contents of the Bible differently from the way traditional Adventism teaches it. And yet, at the same time, they'll pull in supporting Ellen White quotes that are not her cultic-sounding statements. They're her more egalitarian, open-minded, gospel-sounding statements. And they'll use quotes from her to support what they're saying so that the dissonance of their interpretation of Scripture isn't going to jar their congregants so much, because here they have Ellen White upholding what they're saying. And I want to say, you guys, this is sad because you don't need to try to uphold anything. You don't need to try to keep people loyal to Adventism. Yeah, you might lose a lot, but let's just go with what you can see here of the gospel. Let's just let the fact that we are born dead in sin and that Jesus paid for our sin and broke the curse of death, let's let that be enough. And if Ellen White has to fall by the wayside, let her fall. And it is so deeply upsetting to me. And I don't mean that in an angry way. I mean that in a feeling of frustration and sadness and almost a little bit of panic because there are people being deceived inside. I want to rescue them. Yeah. And and I think that's why we have such a strong commitment on this podcast to walking through books of the Bible. Yes. There are so many different ways you can go with a podcast after Adventism, but the only thing that actually dispels darkness is light. That's right. And so being able to take back the Bible, being able to take back what God has written for us to see and for us to know and to read in its own context, in its own right, and to understand what he wants us to understand is the most powerful thing we can do after we leave Adventism. Dissecting what they're saying, dissecting what they're teaching, exposing them. That's important stuff to reveal what it is. But ultimately, the only way we can reach them, because I know the panic you feel, Mm -hmm. the only way we can reach people is to show them this is what the inspired word of God is saying, and it doesn't bear any resemblance to that. 
Exactly. I totally agree. And that's why we keep reminding ourselves of our grammatical historical hermeneutic. We did not use that in Adventism. We used a hermeneutic established by Ellen White in her commentary. If the words mean what the words say, then we can take this to the bank. And we don't have to figure out whose mind is the brightest. Because God himself wrote this book. His spirit enlightens those whom he has called and who have responded to him. And he will reveal what he wants us to know. And the Bible is the way we undo that confusion. So let's use that historical grammatical hermeneutic and talk through chapter 10. And let's start by reading these inspired words. Okay. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Wow. I sure don't see the Millerite movement in there. No. Let's talk through this. Chapter 10, again, is an interlude. And remember after chapter 6 where we had the first six seals exposed, opened up, and those first six judgments poured out. We had chapter 7, where we learned who would be able to stand, and we met the 144,000 who had been sealed with the seal of God, and we met the innumerable multitudes standing by the sea of glass who had come out of the Great Tribulation. And then in chapter 8, We have the seventh seal opened, and the first four trumpets are revealed, and their judgments are sounded, and judgments fall on nature. And then the fifth and the sixth trumpets are sounded in chapter 9, and there is where we meet those demonic forces, those strange locusts, those strange horses that come out of the bottomless pit. And they don't hurt nature, they hurt the humans. In fact, the horses kill a third of the population of the earth. And now we come to chapter 10, and we have another interlude. And here, what do we see? What does John see? And what does it remind us of? Yeah, this is really interesting. He saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And the description of this angel is so similar to descriptions of Jesus. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like 
It's him. Exactly. So it says that he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, that his face was shining like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. It's so reminiscent of descriptions of Jesus, but it can't be him. Why not? Even if you said it was a Christophany because it says mighty angel and we've had the angel of the Lord in other parts of scripture, this is another mighty angel. Mm -hmm. And we would never describe any other creature to be like God. Exactly. It's also interesting that the phrase, the angel of the Lord, which many people agree signifies a Christophany in the Old Testament, that's never used of Jesus in the New Testament, because in the New Testament, he has come in the flesh. It's so it's different now. So yeah, he's not one of the same. You know what's interesting to me about that one of the same though? Hmm. That reminds me of the Adventists arguing about Daniel 10, where it says Michael, one of the chief princes, and they'll go, well, of course that's Jesus. He's a chief prince over all those other princes. They ignore the actual meaning of the words, one of the. Yeah, that's a good point. That's one like the others. No, he's not one like the others. He's not Michael. And here, he's not an angel. Yeah. Well, we had another mighty angel in chapter five in the throne room who calls out who is worthy to take the scroll. And who was? It was the little lamb. Yes. So this can't be Jesus, another mighty angel. No, he's the lamb. He's the lion. He's our savior. But the descriptions are interesting and they do bring things to mind from other parts of scripture. When you think of a rainbow, we inevitably think of God's judgment during the time of Noah and his mercy in that judgment. We also have descriptions of the rainbow around the throne. And this angel had a face like the sun as well as the rainbow. And that gives me the the idea of Moses, who when he had been Mm -hmm. in the presence of God and then he left, he put a veil over his face because his face was shining. So this mighty angel was very likely in the presence of God before he came down from heaven. I think it's also interesting that this angel swears an oath in the name of God. Now, we don't have any evidence anywhere in scripture of God ever swearing by anyone other than himself, and very few references even to that. But we do have a reference in Hebrews of God swearing by himself because there is no one else to swear by, and that's in Hebrews 6, 13. And he said this, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So this angel is not swearing by himself. Mm -mm. He is swearing by the name of God. He is not God. And I really did love the very simple conclusion that our Pastor Gary said in his teaching on this chapter. He said, which angel is it? If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. The (laughs) text doesn't say. And you know, I like that. I do too. Leave it there. Mm -hmm. We don't have to know. You know, one of the points that was made on Precept Austin related to whether this angel was Christ or not was that Jesus holds the scroll in his right hand, but this angel is holding it in his left hand and he's raising his right hand to swear. Oh, it's obviously possible that one could switch hands, but it is an interesting description. The angel is raising his right hand to swear an oath by God. And that is, you know, the typical 
pose, the, the right hand, the symbol of one's power. He is deriving his power from God. He's not possessed of innate power. Gary also pointed out the fact that this angel's coming down from heaven takes us back down to earth. John's perspective is now from the earth in this chapter. And he put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. This is an immense (laughs) angel and his stance gives us a picture of universal authority. You know, I loved a quote I read in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this chapter. He said, by placing his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the earth, in a great voice, this angel claims all for Christ. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ through judgment. As creator and redeemer, the world belongs to him. That's amazing. And it bears out as we continue to walk through this chapter. This moment, chapter 10, is a huge moment in Revelation. It is. Everything shifts here. And it just kills me that the Adventists take this and make this about the great disappointment. When in all truth, as we understand the context of Revelation 10, this is the moment that we have all been waiting for. This is when The kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of Christ. And then the bulls that come next are going to flesh out the details of how that takes place. But this is a pivotal moment. Isn't that amazing? I did not realize that before. And you know what, Nikki? Once again, I have to say, I sat through Gary's teaching eight years ago. (laughs) Yeah, I was there. (laughs) I did not get all this then. It's amazing. Well, you know, it's like Kelsey Peterson has often said, leaving Adventism is like peeling layers off yeah. of an onion. So the layers we were working on all those years ago are different they from were. the ones we're working on now. Yeah, they were. And I pray that we'll be able to talk about it from our perspective of understanding what it's actually saying so that other people will hear and not necessarily be as blocked yeah. for so long. Mm-hmm. because this is amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then in verses three and four, the angel has this little book or a scroll in his hand, and he cries out with a loud voice like a lion, and seven thunders pealed. There is a lot in those two verses. What can we say about this little scroll, besides the fact that theologians have always differed about whether this is the same scroll we see in Revelation 5 with the seven seals, or whether it's something else, or like the Adventists, whether it's the book of Daniel, or whether, like some Christians say, it's part of the book of Revelation. What can we say about the little scroll? What do we know about the language? Well, we know that the word for scroll in Greek is biblion, and that's the word we get Bible from. Uh, I know in Spanish, biblioteca, I believe, is a library. In German, it is too, biblioteca. So, it's a word that means book. Biblios means little scroll. But the word used here, and I'm probably going to butcher it, is bibliradion, which means very little scroll. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting to me that the Adventists say this is the book of Daniel, because John, when he heard the seven thunders, he would have known it was the book of Daniel. And then to begin to write the book of Daniel in the middle of a vision is interesting, It's an interesting perspective. I don't see it. Well, it tells me that they weren't actually reading the words and saying, what do these words mean? They were reading the passage and going, "Um, how can we see this whole picture in terms of historical event? 
This is a different word from scroll. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the word biblion for scroll is used about 15 times. But this particular word, bibliradion, the very little scroll, is used only here and in verse 9 of the same chapter. It's only used here, only of this little scroll. It seems to mean some scroll other than the one introduced earlier, if it's this specific. This is a very little scroll with a different word from any other scroll mentioned in the New Testament. And the little scroll echoes the little scroll in Ezekiel, when the Lord commissions Ezekiel for his prophetic work. It's fascinating to me how the book of Revelation echoes the Old Testament prophets. It echoes so much of Ezekiel, so much of Jeremiah, so much of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. In this particular passage, we hear an echo of Ezekiel. And this is Ezekiel 2, 1 to 10. I'm just going to read the whole thing because there's references to this throughout. Mm -hmm. Then he said to me, this is Ezekiel, son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So Ezekiel had a vision of being given a little scroll as well. And We'll see how these correspond with John's experience. But it's fascinating that Ezekiel had this as he was being commissioned to go and speak to Israel and Judah. It's interesting if you jump over to the next chapter in Ezekiel. It says, he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Isn't that interesting? He yes. had to eat a scroll like John had to eat a scroll. And it was sweet for both of them. Mm -hmm. We don't hear about it being bitter in Ezekiel's stomach, but it is for John. So we find that if we look at the pattern in Ezekiel, we see that that scroll 
actually was filled with lamentations and warnings, both front and back. Judgments were written on it. And in the context of Revelation, with this particular scroll coming in an interlude between the judgments of God being poured out on the earth, we can see that there's at least a connection with God's judgments. So then the angel cries out with a loud voice like a roaring lion, which is a very ominous sound. Mm -hmm. He called out, And the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, he was about to write and he was told to seal up the seven thunders and to not even write them down. It's interesting because Daniel wrote it down, but he was to seal it up. Yes, it's a big difference. It is very different. And and he was told, seal it up, because in the last days people will run to and fro and and knowledge will increase. Yeah. And you and I kind of speculated that that might be people coming and studying Daniel and understanding what's going on during their time. It sure seems to be. John isn't even permitted to write it down. And you know, I don't think I ever really thought that through before studying for this podcast. I've read the words, but there's something that God revealed to John that he knew very clearly. And it's interesting too, because those thunders are called thunders, There's seven of them, which reminds us of the voice of God. It reminds us of God's judgment. It reminds us of Sinai. It thunders suggest that a big storm is coming. They're ominous. And John heard them. They were articulate. They had a message. They were not just noises in the cosmos. There was a message in those, and John knew it, and he was going to write it, and apparently it was only meant for John. How did that help John to know what it said, but never to be able to share it? Now, that's a speculation that is not for me to know. That's a mystery Mm -hmm. of God. But it's still interesting that there were judgments in those seven thunders, or there was information in those seven thunders, that for some reason God did not want us to know, and we don't need to know in order to know what we have to know. (laughs) (laughs) And it patterns Daniel. So it's in the context of judgments, and it's right after an angel swore. And that happened as well in Daniel chapter 12. We read in verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And then Daniel is told down in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So it's interesting how They're both connected to God's judgment at the end time. Yes, that is so interesting. So again, Gary asked the question, what are the seven thunders? And he said, some commentators believe that it's another series of judgments that we're not permitted to know, but John knows that seems to be the clear teaching. But others suggest that if they're not written down, then they're canceled. I'm not sure where they get that from, No, but I really appreciate how Gary ended this section. He said, the word of God does not tell us all we would like to know, but it does tell us all we need to know. There's a very important distinction between the two. It's when we try to fill in what God has left as blank pages that you play into the imaginations and the speculations of people. God has forbidden John to tell us some things, and I think of the secret things belonging to the Lord. Our concern is about the things that are revealed. Yeah, that comment of Gary's really struck me as well. I'm not sure how to completely make a connection here, but because it is 
speaking of sealing up the information that the prophet is receiving, Daniel's sealed information was given a time frame, Mm -hmm. time, times, and half a time. Now, we don't hear a time frame in John's, but it's interesting that the angel is going to go on to say to John, but in the days of the seventh angel, and we haven't had that seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet yet, we haven't had that yet, but that's the next thing to come. He says, in the days of the seventh angel, this is in verse seven, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, it's not a time frame like time, times, and half a time, but it's almost more specific because John is right there getting the revelation of what's happening. And he is in an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And this angel is saying, when that seventh one sounds, the mystery of God is finished. You know, this reminds me of what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 24 when he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things have finished. So the generation upon whom they come. Yep. That is a really interesting connection, Nikki. I think you're right. And it's also interesting to me, I remember Gary mentioning this in his teaching, and he was saying, what is this mystery of God? And he said, well, Paul does a very good job of explaining the mystery of God in Ephesians 1. He says this, starting with verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So the mystery of God here is the mystery of this world becoming the kingdom of God and of Christ forever. It's the mystery that's going to be revealed at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, as you mentioned earlier, and the explanation of how this is going to happen is going to be in the seven bowls that come out of that seventh trumpet. And if you jump over to Revelation 11, verse 15, and you read about that seventh angel blowing the trumpet, look at what it says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the seventh trumpet, and that's what chapter 10 is anticipating. Isn't that just exciting? It's very exciting, and it's very different from what we read in those quotes at the beginning of this podcast. You know, this isn't confusing at all. No. (laughs) Those quotes at the beginning of the podcast, I'm still thinking about them and thinking, they're pretty muddy in my head even now. (laughs) We go on from then, and in verses 8 to 10, we read about the voice that's speaking to John in this vision, telling him to take the scroll from the angel who stands on the sea and the land, and he's told to eat the scroll 
It will be, as you read earlier, Nikki, as sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Isn't it interesting that that John walked over to the angel and said, give me the little scroll? (laughs) He says, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. (laughs) That is. I didn't think of it that way. (laughs) That's assertive. (laughs) That is. (laughs) Boy, you have to be acting under authority to do that. (laughs) Well, yeah, and he sure was. Ezekiel was given a scroll containing judgments and information about Israel and asked to eat it. And here... John is being given a little scroll that he is supposed to eat. And it's interesting because the scope of John's prophecy is going to go beyond Ezekiel's. Ezekiel's prophecy was specific for Israel, for the house of Israel. John's is going to be, as we will see, for all nations. But what is it about sweet in the mouth and bitter in the stomach? How are we to understand that? I'm not entirely sure how we're to understand it, but Gary quoted from 2 Corinthians, and I think that it's a helpful passage for this. Share it. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? I think that it's the task that he's faced with. He has to bring this incredibly heavy news to the world. And and it's interesting that, that he was given this information and told to share it with the church right at its early beginnings. And it's been handed down to us generation after generation, but it's really truly going to inform those who are here as it's unfolding. It's amazing that God entrusted this to the church for all of the church age. That's really interesting, Nikki. And you know, I know it's not the same, but I know for those of us who discover the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus after Adventism, it's very sweet in our mouth. But then when we have to turn back to our loved ones who are still stuck there and we have really important news to share with them, it's a bitter pill. It is. It was interesting to just hear both Gary and to read J. Vernon McGee coming up with a similar conclusion about these bitter and sweet aspects of the scroll. They agreed that the sweetness is the result of taking in God's word. Whatever it is, when we take it in, even these harsh judgments that are coming on the world, Nikki, when we read these, don't you find yourself just feeling a sense of rejoicing because it is making some sense Mm -hmm. that we're being relieved of our earlier paradigm and our fear of this book? And even though it's hard, even though it's hard information, like you said, and it's hard to have these messages to share with our Adventist loved ones, the sweetness of God's word surpasses even that. But then, like you said also, the bitter part is now the result of two things. Eating the scroll came with a command to announce words of harsh judgment. God's people will be caught in tribulation. Those who are on the earth and sealed with the Spirit of God, sealed with God's seal during the tribulation, they will be caught in this tribulation and even martyred because the beast is going to be released. 
And there will be judgments on unbelievers and suffering for God's people in the tribulation. And John can't stop now, even though he sees what's going to happen, even though he's starting to see the turning point that's going to cause the earth to become the kingdom of Christ. He has to keep going and he has to prophesy. And that's kind of the point at the ending of this chapter. John was commissioned at the beginning of the book and told, you know, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, write what you see. And now he's being told again, eat this scroll and go prophesy again. It's interesting that there's that almost like there's a second command here for him to go and prophesy again. And Gary pointed out the fact that he's being told to prophesy reveals the nature of the book. This cannot be a political commentary, as some say Revelation is. So then we come to the last verse of chapter 10. And in the NESB, it reads this way, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And Nikki, you read something that helps me understand that pronoun, they. The ESV doesn't say it that way. No, it doesn't. So I didn't put it in my notes, but on the Precept Austin website, they talked about the seven thunders and said that it's in the language, the seven thunders, that each of these thunders, they stand alone. Uh They're intelligent and they each stand alone. So it's not just one thunder that thundered seven times, there are seven thunders. So there's a sense here in which it's not only the angel, it's not only the voice speaking to John, but whatever it was those thunders said to him that he was not allowed to write down, all of them, these messengers from God, these words from God commanded him to go and prophesy again, Mm -hmm. as if what he has already seen and written was not bad enough. But we're going to start the part of the book now where that seventh trumpet is going to sound and the seven bowls are going to come out of the trumpet. And those are going to explain the last events on the earth where the beast is going to come out of the sea and where the little lamb-like beast is going to come, where all those most horrible things are going to come to pass. And John has to tell that. And again, compared to Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a heavy prophecy for Judah, for the nation of Judah. But John's prophecy is against many people and nations. But like Ezekiel, these are words of woe and lamentation, and he can't stop and he can't avoid the call to give these warnings out to the people. The bitterness he's going to experience is all because of the suffering of the believers. And the sweetness, in addition to being the sweetness of hearing and ingesting the voice and words of God, is also related to his reflecting upon the gain of those believers who will be martyred and the gain that they will have when they die. So, one thing that was really helpful to me in concluding this was at the end of Gary's teaching in session 25 on this chapter, his grandson, who was then about 10, asked a question. He asked, why was John recommissioned? And Gary basically said, God was gracious to John by letting him know it's going to be hard from now on. He gave Ezekiel the message that he's going out to preach, but no one will listen to him, but he has to go out anyway because God was sending him. That's what God was doing for John. And he was letting him know 
this is going to be hard, but this is from me. I'll be with you. And I'm asking you to do this and I will enable you to do what I'm asking you to do. And Nikki, I confess that when I heard that, it did make me think about even now, pre-tribulation, that we've been asked to speak the word of God to people who are caught in Adventism. We've been asked to deliver the true gospel, and we've been asked to help people who have our background learn how to read the Bible so that they can be free in their heads from the presuppositions they don't even know they carry around. I have talked to so many former Adventists who've been out for even maybe years who say, People at church don't understand me in my Bible study classes. They don't Mm -hmm. understand my questions. They don't understand what I'm trying to say. That's because when we leave Adventism, we still have that great controversy worldview in our heads. Mm -hmm. And it takes time to unwire that and to put in the Word of God. And if we aren't intentional about learning to read and immerse ourselves in the Bible, We're going to stay stuck in some ways, in ways we don't even know. And even be vulnerable to new systems of thought that aren't lining up with the Word. So if we sound like a broken record when it comes to historical, grammatical, hermeneutic, if we sound like a broken record when we say, you must learn to read the Bible and trust the words. If you know the author of the Bible, you can know that the words mean what they say, and they will never lead you astray. You will not be confused. Even if you don't understand everything, God leaves mystery in his revelation that we're not supposed to figure out because we are supposed to trust him. And that starts with trusting him with your sins. If you haven't faced the fact that you were born, as Ephesians 2 tells us, dead in sin— By nature, children of wrath, under the control of the Spirit who is at work in the children of disobedience, if you haven't faced that that is who you are, by nature, just because you're human, the son of Adam, then this is the time to see what the Bible tells you about yourself and to know God cannot lie to me. This is who I am. And without the Lord Jesus, I am eternally lost. I am under condemnation. I'm under God's wrath by nature. But God sent his son, God the son, who took on human flesh and took into his own flesh our imputed sin. He who was sinless took our sin into his flesh and was nailed to the cross where he hung. And before he died, he experienced the wrath of God against our sin. He paid the price we were supposed to pay. And when we trust him who took our sin, who died, he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose because his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for all our sin. When we trust that, he gives us new life. He gives us birth by the Spirit of God. He gives us a new spirit, a new heart. He passes us from death into eternal life. And we can know from that moment on that we are eternally secure no matter what we face. And if you know Him, then you know He will not lead you astray. He cannot lie. His word means what His word says. And He will save you from the wrath to come. Join us next week as we look at Revelation chapter 11. 
We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.